1: Uh, you probably heard of this, an enormous project undertaken by the United States of America, of course, to land the first humans on the moon in the 60s. Now, I don't want to spoil the ending here, you know, but as the whole man on the moon thing is pretty famous. Obviously, you know, you probably already know what happened. Stanley Kubrick was enlisted to help fake the whole thing, and he was such a perfectionist that he actually insisted on flying everything up to the moon itself so as to fake it properly with an on-location shoot, and obviously... The rest is his. No, obviously that's not what. <laughs> obviously that's not what happened. Between 1961 and 1972, the Apollo program involved uh, 18 different missions. Twelve of them were manned. Six of them uh, successfully reached the moon and saw a total of 12 people walk on the moon's surface. Now Apollo 11 is obviously the most famous of all the missions being the one that sent Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin and uh, Michael Collins to the moon with Armstrong and Aldrin being becoming the first and second humans ever to fit, uh, to set foot on another celestial body. Apollo 13 is also very famous of course uh, for its near catastrophic failure that saw disaster averted as the three astronauts aboard uh, engineered away home for themselves after an explosion in their spacecraft. We'll talk about all of this uh, in more detail, but, but more broadly, we'll get stuck in and, uh, and talk about the whole program, which of course, you know, is, as I say, incredibly well known and was a truly monumental undertaking that achieved a, a large number of historic spaceflight first, including, of course, the first human on the moon. But it was so much more than just a scientific endeavour as well, because it, its aims weren't just, you know, exploration, scientific understanding it was just as much political as it was scientific. The Apollo program took place against the backdrop of the Cold War between the United States and, uh, and, and the Soviet Union. Uh, and in fact, the, the Apollo program began in response to the USSR successfully launching a human, Yuri Gagarin, into space in 1961. And over the next decade, the Apollo program would cement the USS position as the technological, technologically superior leader of the space race uh, and would unlock new technologies and understandings of, of of the universe in which we live of course and as you might have guessed there is a lot to get across today i know i say that every week but bloody hell there really is a lot going on with this one as you can probably tell by the length of the episode so it's going to be a bit of a whirlwind tour uh, a big picture overview as we talk about what uh, went on uh, with the Apollo program and uh, and you know how it ultimately landed humans on the moon for the first time so we're going all the way back here going all the way back to 1960 when Under President Eisenhower, the United States began to consider their next move, the next spaceflight move after Project Mercury, which was their first human spaceflight program. Project Mercury had seen small one person capsules launched into space. The first U.S. astronaut in space was Alan Shepard. He was launched on the 5th of May, 1961, just under a month after the Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. Uh, The, the, uh, uh, the Mercury project, Project Mercury, was followed by Project Gemini, which saw the US launch two-person crews into low Earth orbit. Appropriately named Project Gemini, uh, but these sort of nascent ideas about the Apollo project sought instead to send crews of three rather than the two that were sent up uh, with Gemini. Anyway, so these are this is what's going on before uh, the Apollo program. You know, NASA's mucking around with uh, with Project Mercury, Project Gemini. But the Apollo program is thrust into, uh, into the public eye. It's, it's harnessed, really, uh, for political purposes more than anything else. Uh, at the beginning of the 1960s, uh, under the presidency of John F. Kennedy, he contested the 1960 election and won it, of course, with promises to outstrip the USSR technologically, particularly when it came to the space race. However, once he took office, his enthusiasm for space exploration cooled, particularly after seeing just how bloody much it was going to cost. But then... On the 12th of April 1961, as I say, the USSR successfully launched Yuri Gagarin into space and this kicked the Kennedy administration into top gear. Before the end of May, three weeks after Shepard became the first American in space, Kennedy made a famous speech to Congress. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. Now, Kennedy was being beyond ambitious here. The United States has just sent a bloke into space, and now he's talking about going to the bloody moon in under nine years. But i tell you this, they did it, didn't they? They bloody well did it, and here's how they did it. The successes of the USSR, plus this you know, lofty new goal from the president himself, they were both massive shots in the arm to to, to US spaceflight plans. Money poured in from uh, from the government. Political support was at an all-time high. And the momentum was well and truly behind NASA as they got on with fulfilling this lofty ambition of President Kennedy. The Apollo program became the vessel for this entire endeavor. In its preliminary stages, it had been investigating you know, NASA lunar exploration ideas. But with this new presidential directive, the program was abruptly thrown into top gear. Uh, designs for spacecraft that could ferry a crew of three all the way to the moon and have them land and explore the surface and then safely return them back to earth they were rigorously investigated and evaluated these designs these plans and meanwhile as funding came in huge nasa facilities were built with this money they were built they were expanded they were enhanced the uh, the nasa launch operations center which is today known as the kennedy space center after the after the president's assassination uh, it was constructed in florida it was built near the uh, it was built because the nearby existing launch facility at Cape Canaveral just wasn't big enough for the gargantuan rockets that would be needed for these Apollo missions. Uh, And additionally, the Manned Spacecraft Center, which is today known as the Johnson Space Center, named after President Johnson, of course, from his native Texas, was constructed in Houston, uh, which, of course... Uh, includes the famous Mission Control Centre and, like the space, uh, the Kennedy Space Centre, is still in use today. And on top of these designs for the spacecraft and the new facilities from which to launch them, of course, a huge number of people were brought on board to work on the project. Estimates, estimates go as high as 400,000 people working on the Apollo project. And one thing I find very amusing about <laughs> about the Apollo program as a whole here is that its intended political ambitions, right, were to prove that the US was superior to the USSR. In other words, to prove that the capitalist free market system of the United States was indeed superior to the Soviet centralised planned economy. And how did the United States demonstrate that a capitalist free market system was, you know, superior to a centralised planned economy? with a massive with just a huge amount of public spending on a centralized bureaucratic government project a very interesting way to demonstrate the power of the free market spending billions and billions on a government project but hey i suppose it worked and also in fairness, the open market, though, I do have to say that NASA, they did make use of a fair number of, uh, of private contractors uh, to make a lot of the stuff they use. But this, interestingly, it led to a very famous quote uh, that came from either Alan Shepard or John Glenn, uh, who's another astronaut, uh, when being asked to reflect on uh, some of their feelings, you know, as they were being launched into the, uh, into the heavens, uh, strapped to a rocket here. Uh, they said, one of them said, <clears throat> my life depended on 150,000 pieces of equipment, each bought from the lowest bidder anyway as I say this project it did cost billions it was very very expensive indeed and and, and that is billions even back then uh, that is uh, billions in you know the money of the 1960s it's estimated that it cost over 25 billion US dollars all in all the Apollo program that's over 150 billion US dollars in today's terms. So uh, these trips to the moon were not bloody cheap. Let me tell you that. Anyway, I talked about some of the plans. Let's talk a little bit about the plans that were being drawn up for the actual spacecraft itself. And let's get into that a little bit, little bit more because it's very interesting indeed. There were four competing ideas at the outset as to what kind of approach should be taken to actually landing people on the moon and then turning them around and getting them home. Uh, one of these ideas involved shooting a rocket straight at the moon. Uh, this rocket would just leave from Earth and fly straight at the moon and land there. It would carry on it another smaller rocket, which would then launch from the moon to bring the astronauts home. But this idea required an absolutely colossal rocket to be launched from Earth so as to carry the smaller rocket along with it, which would have been a uh, just a... a, 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 a a massive undertaking, an impossibly large undertaking build a rocket that big that could carry another rocket to bring them home. Uh, another idea which was similar to to this one uh, involved, instead of launching the smaller rocket together with the big one, launch them both separately, right? Send, a smaller rocket filled with fuel for the return journey would be sent to the moon separately without a crew. And then once the crew landed on the moon on their big rocket, they would refuel from the first one, head back on the one there that they came in, Right. Uh, A third idea involved launching smaller parts of a big rocket into low Earth orbit rather than try to blast all off in one big piece from Earth, um, blast it up in in smaller bits into low Earth orbit, assemble them them there in orbit, and then fire this newly built spacecraft into the orbit of the Moon, uh, which is known as a Translunar Injection. Uh, But the idea that finally won out uh, ahead of all of these other ones was known as the Lunar Orbit Rendezvous Plan. This involved building a spacecraft composed of different modules, all of which have different roles, and once their role, role was complete, they would then be jettisoned and discarded. You'd put a modular spacecraft on top of a big rocket, blast off Earth towards the moon, where a translunar injection would put it in lunar orbit. The modular spacecraft would then break apart. Two modules, the command module and the, and the support module, the CSM, would remain in orbit while the other module, the lander, uh, would descend to the surface of the moon. The lander module is uh, perhaps the most famous Apollo spacecraft of all. It's the one that uh, it's the, it's that squat, four-legged one that you've definitely seen pictures of. Uh, because due to the lack of atmosphere on the moon the lander didn't need to be aerodynamic often you know you think of rockets as being long tall sleek and conical but the lunar lander didn't need to be like this at all because of the negligible atmosphere that the moon has it could des- it can descend freely you know it's not going to tumble or burn up uh, and it doesn't need to be made with with aerodynamics factored in at, at all essentially that's the why that's why it uh, it looks the way that it does anyway the astronauts uh, on the lander they would they would reach the surface Uh, you know, do whatever they're going to do. And then when they were ready to leave, the top half of the lunar lander would break away from the bottom using the bottom half essentially as a launch pad. So the the bit with the, the squat bit with the legs actually remained behind on the moon, while the top half, the ascent stage, to give it its proper name, would blast off into lunar orbit. It would meet back up with the command and service module, the, the CSM. Uh, and then once the astronauts were back aboard the CSM, uh, the top half of the lander would be jettisoned and the astronauts would head back to Earth uh, aboard again, the, the command and service module. A trans-Earth injection would see the CSM enter Earth. Orbit, and then finally, the service module would be detached and jettisoned, and the command module with the three uh, astronauts inside would be the the only thing essentially to re-enter the uh, the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, all going well, the command module would sa- land safely in the uh, in the Pacific Ocean, a splashdown where the astronauts would be picked up and taken home safe and sound. So that was the plan. That was the plan that was drawn up for these Aspo- uh, Apollo spacecraft, but. This modular spacecraft had to first, of course, be launched from Earth. And to do that, the U.S. needed a rocket powerful enough to launch it. And it weighed, of course, tens of thousands of kilos, so the rocket had to be gigantic. Now, when talking about rocket science, of course, you have probably heard the name Werner von Braun, right? Now, he was the man who helped to design and develop the famous V-2 rocket, which was a ballistic missile that was used by Nazi Germany to bombard the allies during the second world war. Now, Werner von Braun, he was a paid-up card-carrying Nazi. After his willing surrender to the US at the end of the second world war, he seemed to have uh, strongly played this down. He really did seem to want to uh, sweep his connections with to, to the the Nazi regime under the rug, but you know, he was a member of the SS. He was uh, someone who very willingly aided Nazi Germany during the second world war. He made he made a number of Very shaking, uh, seemingly shaky claims about his ignorance of atrocities like, you know, the Nazi use of slave labor, saying he he later after the war said that he thought of Hitler as a pompous fool. Uh, But there is no doubt about the fact that he was very much in bed with the Nazis during the Second World War. But his past as a Nazi seemed to be largely irrelevant to the United States, who happily scooped up von Braun and his team. Uh, Von Braun continued to work on rocketry first for the US military and then after this for NASA into the 60s. And uh, it was von Braun, of course, who was the chief architect of the Saturn series of rockets that would power the Apollo missions, including the famous Saturn V rocket, which to this day remains the record holder for the heaviest payload launched with a capacity of 140,000 kilograms. Truly gargantuan, these rockets were. Anyway, Before the manned moon missions uh, were properly begun, uh, a long series of test missions were undertaken to test rockets, spacecraft, equipment, processes, procedures, generally just make sure everything was going to work. And the very first of these missions, these uncrewed missions, was mission SA-1, which was held on the 27th of October, 1961, when the first Saturn I rocket was put through an uncrewed test launch. So you can see already by October in 1961, the United States already at top clip trying to make sure that they uh, aren't going to fall too far behind uh, with the space race, putting essentially all of their money behind the Apollo program as, as, as the thing that is going to help them beat the Soviets. Uncrewed test missions, uh, you know, from October onwards, they continue continued uh, throughout the early mid 60s as nasa rigorously tested each part of the equipment that they would be using in eventual crewed launches including uh boilerplate what's known as boilerplate full-size models essentially uh boilerplate versions of the csm the command and service module that would eventually carry people to the moon they'd make mock-ups of them essentially and, and blast them off on top of these rockets to make sure that they were going to work as time passed NASA grew closer and closer to being to being ready to launch crewed missions. In 1966, they launched a series of what were supposed to be the final uncrewed flight tests: AS201, AS203, and then, confusingly, AS202. (laughs) AS202 took place after AS2 uh, AS203. There, There were delays with the spacecraft being ready for the test missions, and. This is just the start of the numerical confusion of the Apollo missions. Don't you worry? Anyway, these AS tests held in 1966 they seem to have been uh, very successful from a scientific point of view, but they were still causing problems on a larger scale. The whole Apollo project was behind schedule, despite the you know the the, the blistering pace it was taking. It was still behind schedule. The US had hoped to launch crewed flights before the end of 1966, but the delay of AS 202 made that impossible. This pressure that was being put on NASA to perform here, it was enormous, and it resulted in a fair bit of internal strife within NASA. But nonetheless, after trying to straighten things out, the date uh, of the uh, the 21st of February, 1967, was announced for the first crewed Apollo flight. The three crew members... Uh, gus grissom ed white and roger b chaffee they began to refer to this mission not as as204 to give it its official name but instead as apollo 1 this was meant to provide focus and motivation give everyone a very clear benchmark a starting point here for everyone working on the project Crewed apollo flights are about to begin they're about to become a reality with apollo 1 but then of course as you may know uh with apollo 1 disaster struck Weeks before the flight was scheduled to take place as part of their training for the mission, the three astronauts, Grissom, White, and Chaffee, they took part in a test that would simulate a launch countdown of the mission with them inside the CSM. They boarded the module in their pressure suits, ready for a test that was designed to bring them closer to experiencing mission conditions. The crew was enclosed in the command module, which was pressurized and flooded with oxygen. And as they were working through this pre-flight checklist that they had, tragically, An electrical fire started in the cabin. The interior of this oxygen-filled, pressurised command module was immediately engulfed in flames, and the three astronauts perished straight away. They were unable to escape. Now, in the wake of these three tragic deaths, stringent inquiries were held. The tragedy was reviewed by Congress, and very significant changes took place within the Apollo program as a result of the Apollo 1 disaster. Uh, Human spaceflight was suspended completely, and the design of the CSM was changed quite notably, uh, most notably, the hatch, the, with, which was used to get in and out of it, was uh, redesigned to be easily opened from the inside now, and uh, the 100% oxygen wouldn't be used inside the command module anymore. And on top of this as well, very importantly, the astronaut's spacesuits would now be made of fire-resistant materials. As I say, crewed missions suspended altogether. Uncrewed missions were delayed in the wake of this disaster as well. The next one wasn't held until the 9th of November, 1967, 10 months after Apollo 1. And as I mentioned, as I say, it was once again uncrewed. Crewed missions are not on, the, uh, not on the cards at this stage. This mission, this next mission, uncrewed mission, was renamed Apollo 4 as a mark of respect to the three astronauts who had died, there had been three uncrewed flights previously to Apollo 4, while the Apollo 1 name was designated specifically uh, to, to remember the tragedy. So that means that there was never an Apollo 2 or 3. The numbers do get a bit confusing, but from here on out it should make sense, even though ultimately the 18 Apollo missions only ended up with us getting to Apollo 17, but from here on out, the numbers were used, you know, sequentially, and, and, and it should make a bit more sense. Anyway, Apollo 4 was an uncrewed mission that was designed to test the capacity of the brand-new Saturn V rocket by putting a, a, a CSM, a boilerplate CSM, into Earth orbit, uh, and it then tested the command module's ability to re-enter the atmosphere safely. It was a success, and it was followed by Apollo 5, another uncrewed mission held in uh, early 1968, that helped to human rate the mission, ensuring that all the systems and processes posed a minimal risk to the astronauts that would be aboard it. Apollo 6 was another uncrewed mission and it was technically a failure. It had planned to test a translunar injection using the Saturn V rocket, but engine failures uh, prevented this from actually happening. But still, valuable data was gathered nonetheless from the mission, uh, despite it not being a complete success. And it brought NASA to a point of readiness to resume crewed missions. And so it was, that on the 11th of October in 1968, 21 months after the Apollo 1 tragedy, Apollo 7 was launched with three astronauts inside, Wally Shearer, Walt Cunningham, and Don Eisel. And this mission, I'm happy to say, was a success. However, rather than be sent to the moon, the CSM orbited Earth for a period of almost 11 days. The objective of this mission wasn't to make it to the moon. It was instead to test the suitability and habitability of the CSM for the length of time that a full lunar mission would take. As I say, 11 days. And in that regard, it went very well. The mission was a success, although in others, it... Wasn't so successful. There was a lot of personal conflict between the astronauts and mission control back on the ground over all sorts of things. The the tests that were being being conducted, the safety of the mission, even an argument over whether the astronauts should wear their helmets during re entry. They were bickering over everything. But despite all this, Apollo 7, it was branded uh, largely a success, and the US had managed to return to their human spaceflight program, putting them back on track for the ultimate goal of Apollo to land on the moon before the end of the decade. Following uh, Apollo 7 was, of course, Apollo 8. It saw a crew of three astronauts, Frank Borman, James Lavelle, and William Anders, fly all the way to the moon and orbit it 10 times. They were the first humans to travel to the moon, although they obviously didn't land on it. They just orbited it. And it was on this mission that the very famous Earthrise photograph was taken by William Anders. This is a, a picture that you've probably seen already, the picture of the Earth rising from behind the horizon of the moon. He and his colleagues were the first humans in history to witness the Earth rising above a horizon like this. Think of that. After this, of course, came Apollo 9. This was another mission that didn't go to the moon. Uh, James McDivitt, David Scott and Russell schweikart they remained in Earth orbit, principally testing the lunar module this time. They demonstrated its ability to be flown independently and they tested its docking procedures with the command and service module and also tested life support systems and underwent EVAs, or spacewalks, spending a total of 10 days in orbit. After Apollo 9 came Apollo 10. It was essentially a dress rehearsal for Apollo Uh, A Saturn V rocket launched Thomas Stafford, John Young and Eugene Cernan towards the moon. And after arriving in in lunar orbit, Stafford and Cernan flew, flew the lunar module within 16 kilometers of the moon's surface. They actually got aboard the lander, flew it almost all the way down to the moon before flying back up, redocking with the CSM without actually landing. This tested lunar gravity. It helped to calibrate the systems that would ultimately be put into use for the final powered descent of Apollo 11. But what I find the most interesting about the Apollo 10 mission is this. NASA Deliberately underfueled the lander module for this mission. They only filled it halfway with fuel. And this was done, it was deliberately, as I say, it was done on purpose. It wasn't just that them, it wasn't a case of them, you know, not having enough money <laughs> at the petrol station to fill it up all, all the way. Oh, half a tank, that'll do. No, it was done on purpose, right? To prevent Stafford and, and Cernan from being tempted to disobey their orders and land on the moon anyway if they'd done that they would have been stranded they wouldn't have had enough fuel to 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 take off from the surface of the moon again and so it was done to remove the temptation hopefully you know they'd rely on their their instinct for self-preservation and not doom themselves by uh, by by wanting to be the first men on the moon the first people to, to ever land on the moon but I tell you what a way to go mate you'd ma- I t- I w- I would be I would be tempted to make history like that you can sign yourself to a very very horrible death uh, you know m- Hundreds of thousands of kilometres away from everyone else, but you would make history doing it. Anyway, Stafford and Cernan, they did not succumb to the temptation. They did not doom themselves with an ill-fated attempt to make history. No, they were not the first people to walk on the moon. We all know who was, obviously, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, along with the sadly often overlooked Michael Collins. These were the three astronauts that crewed Apollo 11, the mission that successfully landed humans on the moon for the first time in history. Apollo 11 was the culmination of all of the combined efforts of the massive Apollo program over the last decade, and it would finally fulfill the ambitions set out by President Kennedy in his speech all those years ago. The mission launched on the, on the 16th of July, 1969, and the three men blasted off in the CSM named Columbia atop a Saturn V rocket. After a three-day flight, Columbia reached the moon and began to orbit it as the crew made preparations to land. Armstrong and Aldrin, they boarded the lunar module named Eagle, and once everything was in readiness left Collins alone in Columbia and began their descent. Now, the landing was a little rocky. Uh, They didn't land exactly where they'd planned to, and Armstrong actually had to manually pilot the module uh, to avoid boulders on the lunar surface. But they landed safely, and once they had, they began to make preparations to exit the lander. Now, according to the official plans that had been drawn up, they were at this point supposed to sleep, Uh, The schedule called for a five-hour rest period, but Armstrong and Aldrin were too excited and instead they began to make their preparations to walk on the moon for the first time. Now, this took a very long time, these preparations, three and a half hours, in fact, rather than the plan two, and it was over six and a half hours after after they landed that they were finally ready to step out onto the surface of the moon. Armstrong was to be the first to exit the lander, and after slowly making his way out of the hatch and down the ladder on the side of the module, at 2.56 UTC on the 21st of July 1969, Neil Armstrong made history by becoming the first human to walk on the moon. And it was then, of course, that he uttered his famous quote. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Which doesn't actually make any sense when you think about it because in this is in this instance man and mankind right they both refer to the same thing they're both a rather dated way of saying humanity what armstrong meant to say was that's one small step for a man one giant leap for mankind but he buggered up the line can you believe it i mean all the go all the way to the moon you got this bloody you beautiful line to deliver and you stuff it up neil mate come on but i guess you know he wasn't included on this mission for his oratory abilities, was he? So maybe we'll let him. We'll we'll let him off in this situation. Anyway, Armstrong. One of the first things he did uh, after having you know set foot on 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 the lunar surface was to quickly co- uh, collect some lunar soil. And put it in a pocket on his space in his spacesuit. This was actually a a very deliberate. It was part of the plan from the from the outset. And the reason for this, very clever, was in case the mission was to be aborted quickly during this, uh, you know, during this the initial stage of this EVA, this moonwalk here. If it had to be aborted quickly, they'd have something to show for it. They'd at least have a pocket full of uh, of lunar soil here. After he'd uh, secured this soil sample, he took the TV camera that had filmed him stepping onto the surface. He panned it across the lunar surface, so the millions of people watching on Earth could see. It's estimated that 20% of the entire population of the Earth tuned in to watch this broadcast on television. And 19 minutes after he first stepped onto the moon, Armstrong was joined by Buzz Aldrin, whose first words on the moon were simply, magnificent desolation.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.
1: there had actually been some debate back on Earth uh, as to who was going to be the first to, to to set foot on the moon. Aldrin put up something of a fight to the idea that Armstrong was to be the first, but Armstrong, as the commander of the mission, he was eventually chosen to be first. Uh, in contrast to some of the other Apollo teams, the Apollo 11 team weren't actually, they weren't great mates. They, they worked very well together. They were very professional with each other, but they weren't really friends, and they didn't get on personally, it's been said, in contrast to some of the other uh, uh, crews. For example, Apollo 12 uh, very famously uh, got on very, very well indeed. Um, no, nonetheless, you know, irrespective of what they uh, of how they dealt with each other, what they thought of each other, they had a job to do on the moon together and and they got underway with it very quickly indeed they planted a U.S flag on the lunar surface. They took a call from U.S President Richard Nixon, and then they began to collect soil and rock samples uh, to take back to Earth with them. The two astronauts had a list of tasks that'd been assigned to complete on the lunar surface and they very quickly went about attempting to work through them all, various experiments, uh, gathering samples, etc. But then, after just two and a half hours of working through this list of tasks on the surface of the moon, both astronauts returned to the Eagle after just two and a half hours and went to sleep. You go all that way, great big trip to the moon, spend two hours outside, and then sleep away the next seven hours before leaving. I mean, it's it sounds it sounds ridiculous, but obviously, you know, these two men needed to rest before ascending back up into the CSM. It makes sense. It's a delicate and very complicated procedure. They they don't want to do it on, on, on no sleep. And I don't know how much sightseeing there is to do on the moon in, in any, you know, there's not, not a souvenir shop. You can go and get some gifts to take back home. But it is a funny thing to think about. You go all the way to the moon and then you just sleep through the best part. It's unbelievable. Anyway, after seven hours of rest, Armstrong and Aldrin, they were awoken, they spent another two and a half hours preparing for for the ascent back up to the CSM, and after 21 and a half hours on the surface of the moon, the eagle lifted off, taking with it these two brave pioneers, boldly going where no human had gone before, and as the lander lifted off, blasted away from the surface of the moon... It knocked over the US flag that they'd planted there. Oops. <laughs> anyway, what had, uh, what had Michael Collins been doing up in orbit meanwhile? He had spent the last day cruising around the moon, quietly orbiting it, experiencing the most intense solitude any human had ever gone through. Every single other human in existence, except for two, was almost 400,000 kilometres away from him. And Armstrong and Aldrin, they were busy. They're you know They're not able to chat with him. As Collins orbited the moon, when he, when he went around the side that doesn't face the Earth, he was cut off from radio contra- uh, contact with, uh, with mission control for 48 minutes at a time. I don't think it's possible for us to imagine such total isolation. But Collins reportedly, despite being so far away from every other human in existence, he didn't mind it. He later described it as relaxing. In any case, once Armstrong and Aldrin had left the moon's surface, Collins prepared the Columbia to dock with the Eagle and bring them back aboard. This process went off without a hitch, and the three men were safely reunited. The Eagle was then jettisoned. It crash-landed back down onto the moon some time later, while the Columbia left lunar orbit and headed back towards Earth. An uneventful return trip culminated in the command module separating from the service module before splashing down in the Pacific on the 24th of July 1969, and the three astronauts were picked up by the US Navy, taken into quarantine aboard the aircraft carrier USS Hornet on the outside chance that they'd brought back, you know, some unknown lunar pathogen. Uh, this was seen as extremely unlikely, but better safe than sorry. They were held in in, uh, in, in uh, protective quarantine there on this aircraft carrier. And on the Hornet, they were greeted by none other than President Nixon himself, who spoke to them while they were all inside this little sort of quarantine box thing. Go and look it up. It's a, it's a, it's a very funny picture. Anyway, this quarantine was lifted on the 10th of August. And on, on the 13th, the three astronauts enjoyed ticket tape parades in New York, New York City and Chicago, and they passed into history as the first human's to ever have set foot on the Moon. And in doing so, of course, not only did Apollo 11 realise President Kennedy's lofty ambitions that he'd set out in 1961, but also brought about an effective end to the space race. This was a huge political victory for the United States. The USSR took to the old primary school defence of I'm not playing. Their response was to claim that they weren't even trying to reach the Moon, but it was no good. The US had demonstrated their technological superiority and the USSR's effort, they did make an effort. They really did try to get there, came to naught. But even with the Space Race 1, the Apollo program wasn't finished, not by a long shot. Six further missions were sent to the moon, Apollo 12 through 17, and while only five of them were successful, they entrenched the overall success of the Apollo program and brought back a rich harvest of scientific data. Apollo 12, which featured Charles Pete Conrad, uh, Richard Gordon and Alan Bean, followed in Apollo 11's footsteps flying to the moon on the 14th of November, 1969. Conrad and Bean spent almost eight hours cutting about on the lunar surface, quite an extension of time when compared to uh, Armstrong and Aldrin. And Conrad's first words on the moon were a, a little less serious than Armstrong's. Apparently, the reason that he uh, he was so flippant after landing on the moon here was because he made a bet with a reporter who had asked uh, if, if NASA had scripted what he should say when he landed, but apparently he was never actually able to collect on the bet. So I don't know if it was worth it, sort of missing an opportunity for some piece of very, you know, deep and sublime poetry or something like that. Instead, he just said, you know, whoopee. I mean, Good on you, Pete Conrad. You certainly made your mark on history, and it's a shame you were never never able to collect the bit. Anyway, uh, Conrad and Bean, they, they gathered geological samples, over 40 kilograms of them. They deployed scientific instruments and, of course, planted a US flag, although this one was put down a little further away from the lander, so it wouldn't be knocked over during the ascent. Apollo 13, the next mission, is probably the second most famous Apollo mission, and uh, it's been characterised uh, as a successful failure. It was it was crewed by James Lavelle, Jack Swigert, and Fred Hayes. You might have heard this story. There are films about it and everything. Uh, what happened in brief is this. There was an explosion inside an oxygen tank in the service module, which forced the lunar landing to be aborted. The mission's life support was under critical threat after this, this explosion, and the crew was forced to use the lunar module as a sort of lifeboat as both they and countless people back on Earth attempted to find a solution that would bring them back home. In freezing conditions with strictly rationed water, the crew managed to make the life support systems of the lunar module, which was designed, again, to support two men for two days on the surface of the moon, keep three men alive in space for four days. This included having to improvise a way to make use of the carbon dioxide scrubbers from the command module work inside the lunar module so they wouldn't suffocate. Engineers on Earth swiftly and brilliantly designed a makeshift device that used bits and pieces of the spacecraft that could safely be used, including the ripped covers of procedure manuals and obviously a lot of duct tape. And the accident took place en route to the moon. But rather than sort of turn around, the spacecraft actually did reach the moon. It looped around it and then returned to Earth instead. It was a harrowing and very unpleasant experience for the crew aboard, but they ultimately, and miraculously, you might say, survived it. They survived the ordeal, returned to Earth safe and sound without anything worse uh, worse than Hayes developing a urinary tract infection, uh, which was uh, as a result of the strict water rationing there. Nothing worse happened to the three of them. So, uh, a successful failure I think a uh, a good way to to phrase Apollo 13. Apollo 14 was next it's it saw Alan Shepard the same guy uh, the first American in space uh Stuart Rusa and Edgar Mitchell reach the moon safely much the same as Apollo 11 and 12. and that's some quite an interesting adventures on the surface of the moon they spent almost nine and a half hours uh, uh, in in EVAs, moonwalking around. Uh, split across two EVAs, and they were supposed to investigate a nearby crater, Cone Crater, which would have uh, provided valuable geological data about what was under the lunar soil. However, on the way to the crater, the astronauts became lost. The maps that they had were very hard to read, didn't match the landmarks in front of them, right? And eventually, they were told to turn around, give up their search for this crater, and return to the lander before they ran the risk of exhaustion. Now, later observations, photos that were taken from orbit of this of the landing site here, they show that the footprints of these astronauts were within thirty meters of the crater, and they annoyed a lot of geologists by not making it there and gathering these uh, you know these invaluable samples there. And they annoyed the geologists even more during their second DVA, I mentioned they went on to when Shepard, you know, rather than going off and chasing down this cone crater, instead. Shepard produced two golf balls and the head of a six iron, which he then attached to a sample tool and whacked the golf balls like he was down at the driving range. He claimed that they went for miles and miles in the moon's low gravity, but again, time proved him wrong. Only this year, right, it was very recently, new imaging showed that they only travelled 22 miles. And 36 meters, not the miles and miles that was claimed by uh, by Shepard there. So a little a little off with those numbers, but overall the mission was a total success. It has to be said, and brought back almost 43 kilograms of moon rocks. The next mission, Apollo 15, was another successful moon landing that launched on the 26th of July 1971. It took David Scott, Alfred Warden and James Irwin to the moon. Scott and Irwin land on the surface and spent a much longer time uh, exploring it. They spent a total of 18 and a half hours doing surface EVAs, including with a lunar roving vehicle or a moon buggy, as it's often called. Apollo 15 was the first mission to feature a moon buggy and the next two featured one as well. All three of these moon buggies are still up there on the surface of the moon. Uh, This mission also saw the famous experiment that helped helped to prove Galileo's law of falling bodies, that gravity makes objects accelerate uniformly regardless of mass. While on the moon, Scott dropped a feather and a hammer from the same height, and they both hit the surface of the the moon at the same time. You can look up footage of this. It's fascinating. It's very, very cool indeed. And while it seems counterintuitive to us here on Earth that something something light like a feather would fall at the same rate as something heavy like a hammer, the only reason that it doesn't here on Earth, as I say... Is because of air resistance. It's not weight or mass that slows down the feather, it's uh, it's, it's just air resistance. On the moon, which doesn't really have an atmosphere, as, as we've said, the feather was unaffected by air resistance and so it fell just as quickly as the hammer. And as I say, you can go on YouTube and you can watch this experiment take place. It really is fascinating. Unfortunately, this mission, however, was marred when it emerged that the, the crew had secretly taken postal covers, commemorative envelopes with stamps on, uh, took them all the way to the moon with a view to sell them later. It obviously enormously inflated prices. They'd be invaluable to collectors here. And NASA took a very dim view of this profiteering done by the astronauts, and uh, they were removed from future space programs. They never flew again. Apollo 16 was similar to Apollo 15. It blasted off on the 16th of April 1972 and involved a successful trip to the moon that saw astronauts John Young and Charles Duke spend a total of 20 hours on surface EVAs, while T. Kenneth Mattingly remained in the CSM, making observations from orbit. This was the longest moon mission yet. Young and Dukes spent three days on the surface of the moon, and the mission brought back almost 100 kilos of moon rocket, uh, Moon rocks to study. Uh, they zipped about in the moon buggy, of course. Well, I, I say zipped about. It could only go at about 13 kilometers per hour. But they gathered samples, they performed various tests and experiments, and then blasted off from the surface, joined Mattingly aboard the, uh, the CSM, and headed home. On the way, Mattingly performed a deep space EVA, one of only three done in history in deep space to uh, retrieve tape recordings from external cameras on the CSM. And Apollo 16 arrived back safely on the 27th of July, a textbook mission, more or less a complete success. And finally, Apollo 17 saw humans land on the moon for the very last time in history so far. On the 7th of December 1972, Eugene Cernan, Ronald Evans and Harrison Schmidt blasted off to the moon for what would be the last time. Cernan and Schmidt landed on the lunar surface. Schmidt Schmidt was actually a trained geologist. He was, uh, he remains the only professional scientist to walk on the moon, as well as being the only person who wasn't part of the US military to do so. Three EVAs saw them spend a total of 22 hours cutting about on the moon, the longest series of EVAs on record, and plenty of other records were set besides with Apollo 17. The Apollo 17 moon buggy was driven further than than the other two. 110 kilograms of moon rocks was brought back, the largest haul ever. And additionally, it was the longest mission overall, and so involved the greatest number of lunar orbits in the CSM across the six days that the the craft orbited the moon. But... The moment that Cernan and Schmidt boarded the lunar module and blasted off the surface of the moon on the 14th of December 1972 represented the very last time that humans have visited the moon. Apollo 17 was the final Apollo mission, the last time that we would visit the moon, and for that matter, the last time that humans would leave low Earth orbit. Since 1972, no human has travelled beyond low Earth orbit. Missions that had been planned for after Apollo 17 were cancelled. The political support behind visiting the moon had dried up in the wake of the successful Apollo 11 mission, and Nixon even tried to cancel 16 and 17 before being persuaded not to. Apollo 18, 19, and 20 never took place. The priorities and political realities of the time took hold and put these missions on the back burner forever, as it would turn out. NASA was struck with budget cuts and was told instead to focus on other projects, such as things like the Space Shuttle, instead of continued exploration of the Moon. The Apollo program had been a monumentally expensive undertaking, and the US had very few political points left to score with it over the Soviets. They, they won. They got there. They demonstrated their, their superiority. What was there left to prove? It cost just over 25 billion US dollars back then, as I say, which is over 150 billion US dollars today, and NASA simply didn't have the budget to keep the project going. All the same, the Apollo program represents perhaps humanity's greatest scientific achievement landing humans on the surface of the moon and bringing them back safely to Earth. All the more remarkable when you consider that controlled powered flight in proto-aeroplanes had only just begun at the start of the 20th century, not even 70 years before the first moon landing. To go from wobbly, fragile aeroplanes flying for a couple of seconds to landing a spacecraft on the moon almost 400,000 kilometres away in 70 years is a tremendous achievement. And that's what the Apollo program represents. And it's not just achievement for its own sake. Not only did the Apollo missions unlock a huge amount of information about our planet, our solar system, and our and our universe, it also resulted in a range of technological improvements that are much closer to home. For example, the Apollo missions resulted in things like the development of cordless power tools and, and, and solar panels— Improved heart monitors and, and, and fireproof materials. It involved integrated circuits and transistors. Even digital imaging technology like MRIs and CAT scans owe so much to the Apollo program. And on top of all of this, it captured the hearts and the minds of countless millions around the world and, and likely inspired a new generation of scientists and explorers who have gone on to achieve great things in space flight and space exploration since. But we've never matched the achievement of the Apollo program. We've never been back, for better or for worse. More cynically minded people will point out the lack of a political need to, and they'll observe that Apollo was never really about the science in the first place, it was just about the politics and about the US winning the space race, and it's certainly part of it, it's hard to argue, and it may explain why there has never really been any real interest in revisiting the moon almost 50 years after we left it people ask, what purpose does it serve? How does it improve things for us here on Earth? And seem to forget the the majesty and the grandeur of human curiosity and our insatiable appetite for exploration and new knowledge. In any case, whether we return to the moon or not, the Apollo program remains a shining testament to human achievement, a powerful and inspiring legacy of scientific progress. Hopefully, Apollo 17 won't be the last crewed mission to the moon. Hopefully, we didn't leave it all behind back in 1972, almost 50 years ago. One day, we may be back. But until then, the Apollo program represents the very pinnacle of scientific achievement and will be remembered for the rest of human history as something that forever changed our civilization and changed it happily for the better. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Apollo program. And I'd like to thank you for listening to it, just as I'd like to thank you for listening to all the episodes of this dumb history podcast that I've been churning out for nearly three years, episode 150. It is quite astonishing that uh, that uh, I've, uh, I've managed to string this thing together for so long, but uh, I wouldn't be doing it were it not for uh, all the people who send ideas and, and, and topic suggestions and feedback and uh, and whatever else in every week so thanks so much to everyone for the years and years of support across 150 episodes it really it is amazing that i have uh, I, i've stuck with it for this long and, and i hope to stick with it for a, a lot longer uh, in, in the future so whether you're a, a new listener or an old listener thanks for being part of half us history and and, and thanks for sticking with me for so long and uh here's to the next 150 episodes i don't know man am i gonna go for six bloody years i guess we'll see anyway thanks for being here of course halfhousehistory.net is the website uh if you want to go and listen to old episodes or or get in touch with me now i do want to note with the 150th episode of this podcast there may be some small changes that are taking place now hopefully you won't notice any of these changes. There's some stuff that, go, that that's happening with the back end that I need to change in order to make sure we can do another 150 episodes. But these changes, I haven't fully figured out exactly what they involve. They may result in in some small disruption to accessing old episodes temporarily. The, all the episodes will be available, of course, in, in the long term once I get all the issues sorted out. But it may do things like reset your, uh, your listening history and stuff like that. And if that's the case, I do apologise. I know it's a pain in the bum. Um, and it may result in some changes to the website and and, and some of the other back-end stuff there. But again, I'm in the process of figuring it out. It's something i need to do for the longevity of the podcast. And, and I appreciate people's understanding and patience. And certainly, I appreciate any advice that people have when it comes to switching podcast platforms and navigating RSS feeds and... Uh, 301 uh, redirect protocols and all this other stuff that I'm wrestling with. I've got no idea what it's about, but I do appreciate your patience and understanding as I make these changes. And hopefully, hopefully all going well, none of it will actually be noticed, but I do anticipate there will be a small amount of disruption. But again, it is for the good of the, uh, it's for the long-term health of the podcast. So unfortunately, I've got to get it done. And uh, with episode 150, I thought it was an, an appropriate time to perhaps make some changes to make sure that again, there can be, hopefully another 150 episodes to follow. We'll see. Anyway, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it really does mean so much to me that, that people week in and week out tune into this dumb podcast, and, and I hope you continue to do so. Again, whether you're an old listener or a new listener, it is great to have you. But the biggest thanks of all goes to my supporters on Patreon who week in and week out provide me with financial support to make this podcast and, in a very real sense, make this podcast what it is, a full-throated, heartfelt Cheers very bloody much to each and every one of you. And if you want to join their exalted ranks, it's never too late. Patreon.com slash half us history for just a, for a little, as little as a couple of bucks a month. You can gain access to uh, all sorts of secret behind the scenes stuff, show notes, uncut episodes uh, and and whatever else. And once again, thank you so very much to all the people supporting me on Patreon. In addition to everyone else who is listening week in and week out, thanks to all of you. Just slightly more thanks, I suppose, to the people who for some unfathomable unfathomable reason continue to give me money to make this dumb podcast anyway that is that enough nonsense uh, it is time to close out the show the only way we know how with a question posed on reddit of course this one a moon question a history question a very appropriate question to close out the 150th episode of this show it's asked by valentron1 who asks <clears throat> if history repeats itself then why hasn't another person been the first man on the moon